Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Pete Cuomo. I'm a member at Mintz and the co-chair of IP Basics, along with uh, my uh, co-chair, Josh Rudowitz at Greenberg Traurig. Uh, we have a great panel of speakers here today to discuss the value of patents. I'll just add the one disclaimer that uh, they will all be speaking for themselves and not for their respective firms. So I'll start off with introductions. Um, I'll start with Sophie Wong. Sophie is a partner in the IP litigation group at Choate. She represents biotech, pharmaceutical, and technology companies in complex and high-stakes intellectual property and commercial disputes across the country. She is a go-to resource for clients in the life science industry, including for complex patent litigation, including Paxwatchman and biosimilar litigation, post-grant review, and inter-parties review proceedings before the U.S. Patent Trial and Appeal Board, trade secrets litigation, and contract licensing and other commercial disputes. Sophie also routinely advises clients on the management of their U.S. and global patent and litigation strategies, including regularly consulting with counsel before the EPO and in the U.K., Germany, and other foreign jurisdictions. Next, we have Phil Swain. Phil has over 35 years' experience in litigating and counseling clients on managing their intellectual property and products. He has practiced in major law firms based in Boston and Chicago, and Phil now has his own law office focused on serving as a neutral and resolving intellectual property disputes. Phil clerked for the Honorable Giles S. Rich of the United States Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, and has been an adjunct professor at Suffolk University Law School for 25 years where he teaches a course on patent litigation. And finally, we have Michael Newman. Michael is a member in the IP section at Mintz. He represents companies in complex intellectual property disputes with a particular focus on representing patent owners in both the district courts and in unfair trade investigations before the US International Trade Commission. His experience spans from pre-litigation investigation and litigation to appeals before the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. This year, Michael helped his client settle a patent infringement suit for $150 million, which was one of the largest pretrial settlements last year. In addition, Michael has had remarkable success helping patent owners protect their patents from validity challenge in inter-parties review proceedings before the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. Michael also represents a broad range of clients and cases involving such diverse technologies as integrated circuits, carbohydrate chemistry, video compression, semiconductor conductor fabrication, gene expression, medical devices, and even light bulbs and wheels. So jumping right in, uh, in recent years, there's there's been an uptick in the number of people who have been questioning the value of patents in the US marketplace and particularly to emerging businesses. Um, in one comment, Elon Musk went as far as to say that patents are for the weak. They don't actually help advance things. They just stop others from following you. 
And then a number of others have also made disparaging uh, comments about patents recently and questioned patent investments. But there's a bit of a disconnect here. Uh, the US, US patents overall were recently uh, valued at just over $3 trillion, according to Patent Vector, with medical devices and IT patents uh, leading the way. Bio also estimated that uh, the licensing of academic patents contributed up to $1.9 trillion to the US economy, supported 6.5 million jobs in the last 25 years in a new report. And this is further um, reflected by the fact that the USPTO is truly a self-funded agency. In a congressional budget estimate last year, uh, it was determined that they had agency fee collections of $4.2 billion with 3.7 billion or 87% coming from patent fees. So we're gonna try and get to the real story here, but before we dive in, um, it's important to understand how patents fit in with other types of intellectual property. So I'm gonna kick it off with Phil Swain. And Phil, can you uh, just start to go through the major categories of IP protection and start us off with patents? Sure, thanks Pete. So. Um, these next few slides will be uh, about patents, trademarks, copyrights, and trade secrets, which are the four basic sorts of intellectual property that businesses can get. And this, these uh, slides are kind of a rerun of a presentation I often give to clients. Uh, I especially have represented high technology, IT type companies. And I often give this kind of presentation after they get sued for IP infringement, and they ask, how can this be? So a lot of times I'll give a presentation that explains these basics just so they can uh, understand what is available to them and what they're being faced with in litigation. Anyways, to start off with patents. Patents are a statutory uh, grant of protection to protect inventions and designs. And I just want to hold up what a patent looks like. There's a, a picture of it on the slide, but I don't know if people can see it. It's a pretty impressive document. It's got the uh, real patents that the patent office gives out or until recently gave out automatically have these gold seals and a red ribbon on them. And then within the, 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 uh, the patent document is the text description of the invention followed by the claims, we'll explain that later. But anyways, they're, they're an impressive document and they're a good exhibit to show to a jury on uh, what the government has awarded you. Uh, and um, generally, uh, they last for 20 years. They actually, uh, the amount of time they actually last varies depending on how long it takes you to get the patent issued, but 20 years from your first filing. And there have been more than 11 million uh, issued uh, by the U.S. government since uh, the patent system started here in 1790 when the Constitution was um, ratified. So then we'll talk about trademarks. Yeah, we'll move on to slide five. How about trademarks, yep. Paul? There's trademarks. So trademarks, I, I know you're familiar with them, but they're another important part of intellectual property for uh, startup companies or any company to differentiate them. Uh, their goods and their services from other companies. So these are a few famous trademarks. I know you recognize them, but basically 
is something that any company is going to want to get to differentiate themselves from others and to prevent others from using confusingly similar marks. Let's go to copyrights. Copyrights, uh, again, are a statutory grant uh, from the from the government as our trademarks and cop and patents, but uh, the case of copyrights, they are specifically to prevent to protect creative or artistic works, like books, software, movies, and so on, and um, they protect not the idea, like the, the a patent itself can protect the invention, the the idea, the concept. Uh, that you have invented. Copyrights are a little different. They protect the expression of it, but not the idea themselves. So uh, in uh, in some ways they're uh, narrower, but they're also uh, much much more quickly, easily gotten because uh, you just, you file an application to register uh, your copyrighted idea with the copyright office that protects it. And in fact, even if you don't register it, you still own the idea as long as it's uh, your original uh, idea. And then let me go last to trade secrets. Before we get to comparing them, a trade secret is also like a patent, something that protects an idea. But in the case of a trade secret, unlike the patents, which are open, the word patent means open, uh, trade secrets have to be kept secret. And the definition of it is it's a compilation of information that first provides the owner with a competitive advantage and is uh, treated by the owner in a way that uh, to reasonably protect the secrecy or the the confidentiality of that information. Uh, The difference with patents is unlike patents, which uh, you have to describe the idea. Oh, here's a good slide uh, that explains the differences. So patents cover um, inventions, new, useful, non-obvious. Those are the requirements to get a patent. And and they're issued after an examination, a public examination by the US Patent Office. Uh, A trade secret is something that is not uh, public and it's information the owner does not want the competitors to know. With a patent, the idea is disclosed to the public, but you have a limited monopoly uh, to exploit or to exclude others from using that idea. With a trade secret, it's there's no um, time period, but it has to be secret. It's only protected as long as it's kept secret. Uh, with a patent, uh, another difference is that if another person starts using that invention, even if they didn't uh, copy the patented invention, they can still be uh, excluded from using the invention because uh, of the patent grant. Uh, even if you know they they uh, didn't they uh, they de- independently developed it. Uh, trade secret. The, there's no violation if it's independently developed. It has to be misappropriated. That is uh, taken in violation of the confidentiality of the trade secret. The differences are patent, uh, if if a product can be easily reverse engineered, um, you probably wanna get a patent because that will still protect you against the independent developer. Uh, If a trade secret is often a thing like a a recipe or a formula like the Coke 
formula that we saw in the last slide, um, those ideas are not as easily reverse engineered. An algorithm for a uh, software program, uh, those are the kind of things you may want to protect as a trade secret because you won't have to disclose it in public and the length of time can be unlimited. For example, the Coke formula has been protected as a trade secret for well over 100 years. So that sort of differentiates um, the different for forms of inventions. I, I think we're now going to talk mostly about patents because that's probably the most uh, prevalent form of intellectual property protection. And um, it's one that most uh, businesses probably should consider. Thanks, Phil. Um, and that last slide was important because a lot of people are suggesting uh, choosing trade secrets over patents or vice versa. But as Phil said, we'll be focusing on patents today. And um, so we, uh, I'll ask this question to you. Um, what kind of rights do patents uh, provide for the owner? Like, What is a patent and, and what does it do? Thanks, Pete. So I think as Phil mentioned earlier, a patent is often referred to as a limited property right. Um, that is issued by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And it's limited in two main ways. It's set for a very specific period of time, so 20 years from the filing date of the application. And it's limited by a number of statutory criteria that you have to satisfy in order to get a patent. And that's because we actually recognize that the grant of a patent is something that is powerful and valuable, and therefore you cannot freely get it without any form of restriction. Some of those restrictions on are what you can actually claim in your patent. For example, you cannot claim everything under the sun. Um, you can't claim things like laws of nature or abstract ideas or something that somebody else came up with long before you filed your patent application. So what you have to do in order to get a patent on an invention is to make sure that it is something that is new and non-obvious and useful. The scope of a patent can vary. Often people think of patents and they think of things. They think of, you know, you patent a light bulb or you patent a new form of smartphone. But actually patents can cover more than just things. They can cover methods, new or non-obvious ways of doing things, of making things or using things, for example, medicines to treat patients for a particular disease indication. So if you invented those types of new processes, new manufacturing process, you can actually patent those. You can, of course, also patent compositions and systems. So if you actually develop a brand new system, a new drug, for example, a new compound, a new molecule, you actually are able to get a patent on that molecule itself. The way that we determine a patent scope is we look at its claims. And there's an example on this slide here at a very high level to explain this. But again, because a patent is a limited property right, the claims actually mark the boundaries of what your patent can cover, like a fence or a property line. And in this example, we have three sets of claims, three claims here. The first one that simply describes an automobile having a car with four wheels. And in this uh, particular illustration, you see there are three different cars that could satisfy this particular claim. And so it's pretty broad. We narrow in when we get to the second claim, and now we require that the car actually has a roof. So that eliminates the convertible from the first claim, but you still have two other types of cars that fit under this particular claim. And then the last claim on this slide shows the narrowest version of this, which is that now the car has to have four doors. It can't have only two doors. And that gets rid of our little VW bug and we get our uh, one car left. 
So the way that you write your claims and what we look to when we look at patents and what they cover um, is really critical. And that actually tells you what exactly, what type of protection that you have. The way that that provides value to your company, and if we look to the sort of next slide, is um, patents are here, often we often think of them in terms of just enforcing them. Um, and certainly we're gonna talk about that. And Michael, I think we'll talk about that in a moment. But other than providing a means of just protecting your innovation, so allowing for enforcement, patents actually can provide value in numerous other ways for all sorts of businesses. And um, those of us on, the, on this particular webinar have different practices and in different industries that we work in. And there are differences in the value across different industries, but some of the overarching themes are Patents can serve to generate income. They can actually provide a means for smaller companies, for example, or universities to license their innovations where they themselves can't commercialize them. They can license them to business partners who may want to use the innovations and then develop and build upon them. They can also be a way of fostering investments. So for small companies in particular, having a healthy patent portfolio shows that your company is setting itself up for long-term success and is a, has a valuable asset that is useful for future investments. And then overall, having a robust patent portfolio gets noticed and it provides for a level of prestige and reputational benefits within a particular industry, demonstrating the cutting edge and innovative nature of your particular business. So there are overall benefits to having patents and strong patents that are beyond simply a tool used to prevent competitors or other people from taking your invention without permission. There's also a broader value to society, which I think often gets ignored when we talk about patents. Because patents are published and are required by statute, as we just talked about, to actually talk about the inventions that they claim to disclose them, they put out a wealth of information into the public domain where they can be built upon by others. And that teaching is often critical for the next step of innovation, for people to think up of new ideas. They also create incentives because when, when we mark out areas that are covered by patents, they create incentives for others to design around those barriers, to come up with alternatives. And those types of alternatives often result in more choices for consumers and for patients and for the public. And I think finally, and this is probably a sort of known um, benefit, but maybe not so much, the patent system was really what helps improve the quality of life for everyone um, because it allows for companies to invest in and develop key innovations like the light bulb, the telephone, the internet, and in my area of practice, life-saving drugs and therapies. So there's a variety of benefits for patents beyond simply just the enforcement mechanism but that's certainly an important one. And I'll hand it over to Michael to talk about that. Yeah, great. I'll put the next slide up. And uh, Michael, the floor is yours. Can you talk about patent enforcement a little bit? Great, thanks, Pete and, and Sophie. Um, so if someone's infringing your patent, you can take steps to enforce it for sure. There are different ways to approach it, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. So if you're, if you're simply trying to foster a business relationship with the infringer, or if you'd be satisfied receiving a royalty for their use of your patented technology, you can just reach out in a friendly manner, alerting them to your patents and asking for a dialogue. And sometimes this is sufficient to get a deal done, but sometimes it's not. Um, and so if in, initial discussions fail, uh, or if your intent is to pre prevent someone, some competitor from using your invention altogether, then you can consider sending what's called a cease and desist letter. And this ups the temperature uh, and tells the infringer that you have a patent 
It identifies the patent and it basically tells them to stop practicing the patent. And these letters are usually sent you know, by an attorney that you've hired. Um, and so it, it can get a, a pretty good response. As you can see from the woman in the slide, she looks surprised. Um, the benefit is that a cease and desist letter may resolve the matter without the need for litigation, which is really what you want. And sometimes you you get lucky and an infringer, after getting a cease and, con and desist letter stops, will consent to stop. Sometimes they'll take a license or they'll offer you a cross license to their technology. And so you can get a mutual benefit just from a letter alone. Um, there are some risks to a cease and desist letter. A hostile infringer could file an action at the patent trial and appeal board trying to invalidate your patent or they could file for declaratory judgment in the district courts for a finding of non-infringement or a finding that the patents are invalid. But a cease and desist letter may be a good first move if you're trying to enforce your patents. If the cease and desist letter doesn't work, then you have a choice um, of two forms really to assert your, your patents and, and enforce your rights. The first being a district court and the second being uh, the International Trade Commission. I'll go into both of these just really quickly. So at the district court, it's just like any other civil litigation. You ask a jury of your peers to decide the issue. So a jury will determine whether your patent is infringed, whether it's invalid, what damages you're entitled to. And a jury trial presents inherent uncertainty in uh, for both sides, but the damages uh, can be significant. A jury awarded over a billion dollars just a couple of years ago uh, in the VLSI trial. So you can get pretty good damages out of the district court case. District courts are a bit slow. It takes between two and a half and four years, and it can be quite expensive, you know, multi, multiple millions of dollars to enforce your rights there. Um, and unless you and the defendant are direct competitors, you'll only be entitled to a reasonable royalty for the defendant's infringement. So you need to weigh the potential damages against the cost of the litigation to see if it even makes sense. However, if you're direct competitors, you can get an injunction at district court uh, in lost profits damages too. Uh, one one of the cons of the district court is that you're subject to counterclaims, and that means you can be stuck in court even if you want to withdraw your complaint uh, later. So the second forum is the International Trade Commission, and um, there there's no counterclaims, so you can withdraw whenever you want with no penalty. Uh, the ITC is an is an agency under the executive branch of the government as opposed to the judicial branch, um, and it. Its purpose is to block unfairly traded imports that hurt U.S. industry um, by undercutting prices. Famously, like the dumping cases uh, are heard by the International Trade Commission. But the ITC has determined that infringing a U.S. patent is considered a form of unfair trade, but only if there's a significant domestic industry to protect it related, um, related to the patents that you're asserting. The good thing about the ITC is it has what's called in-rem jurisdiction, which means there's no need for personal jurisdiction. It's the thing that's being imported that provides jurisdiction. So if anything that's infringing is coming into the country, you can you can sue in the ITC. And while in injunctions are difficult to get in the district court, um, they're the only thing that you can get at the ITC. And there's two types of injunctions and they're called exclusion orders. The first is a limited exclusion order. And that is um, an injunction limited to the infringing things imported by a named respondent that actually participates in the ITC. And then there's a general exclusion, which is an enormously powerful remedy. It provides it, uh, it prevents importation of all infringing things 
no matter who made them. And this is available when it's difficult to determine who made the imported things or if uh, a limited exclusion order could be easily circumvented. Um, the great thing about the ITC is it's fast. You're, you're to, to trial within nine months, usually 15 months to a final determination. There are some downsides uh, because you can't get damages in the ITC and the ITC's decisions are not binding. Um, if the respondent is able to design around your patent, then you would have to go back to the district court in order to get your damages and basically redo everything uh, and, and retry your case at a district court. So, so anyway, if you find yourself needing to assert your patents, those are two of your options, um, district court for damages, basically an ITC for exclusion orders. So Michael, let's say I have a, a company that makes products and I see that Acme down the road is infringing my patents. Um, I can satisfy domestic industry. Can I take them to, they're making the products, you know, right here in Boston. Can I take them to the ITC? No, unfortunately, they, it needs to be an imported product. It needs, it needs to be a, made in a foreign jurisdiction imported into the country. Okay. But, but I will say, Pete, that most uh, high-tech products, uh, electronics, telecommunications, et cetera, are now manufactured outside the United States. So right. the ITC is usually an option in those circumstances. Right. right, and I'll, I'll build on that. There's a present exclusion order against certain versions of Apple's iWatch or, or the Apple Watch, um, which, you know, it's in the United States company, but it is imported. All right. Thanks for that clarification. Um, this is a big one that I think most critics miss, but uh, how about the value provided by avoiding disputes or avoiding litigation altogether? And Michael, I'll give you this one as well. Uh, thanks, Pete. Well, I would say most usually the value in your patent portfolio is realized by its ability to help you avoid disputes. Um, this slide's pretty busy, but it, it's meant to show various large companies and their patent arsenals. The double-sided arrows show cross-licenses between the, pat the parties, and those are usually part of negotiated truces. And these truces are negotiated out of positions of patent power. So it's sort of like a nation's nuclear arsenal in, in the idea of mutually assured destruction. You really don't want to use your patents. Asserting a patent costs millions of dollars. It's disruptive. It's the last resort. But having patents helps you negotiate peace just by having them. Um, if businesses act ethically, they should purchase or license technology that they're using. Most do without the need for, for any patent assertion. Now, large companies don't necessarily cross-license all of their patents. It's effective to keep some that are not licensed to maintain a, the continued threat. But it's still this idea of mutually assured destruction that really provides value and leverage in negotiations between these companies. And sort of to underscore this point, there large companies um, are are more interested in in protecting than monetizing their patents. Um, large companies are now entering into these contracts called license on transfer contracts, which provide a springing license if the patents are ever sold to someone who wants to assert the patent, but who does not compete in the, in the market. For example, big companies like Apple and Samsung may have agreements in place that if Apple ever sells a patent that's going to be enforced against Samsung, Samsung would actually get a springing license from that. And vice versa, if Samsung sold, Samsung sold a, a patent, Apple would get a springing license in return. So 
if you're in the market to purchase patents, you should be looking out for these types of um, springing licenses to see who and who uh, is not you're not able to sue. Um, and, and these license on transfer agreements really only make sense between between giant companies. It's not really for smaller companies who are more likely to assert their patents or or may need to sell their patents to survive. But still, most most patents are never asserted because they don't need to be asserted to add value. Great. Thanks, Michael. And I think that's one of the big points that most of the critics, like I said, have, have missed along the way. Um, let's go to the next slide and I'll turn to each of you, um, starting with Phil. What are some of the ways that uh, patents are important to these different industries? And, and Phil, how about the value for uh, information technology and medical devices? Yes. Yeah, so that is primarily what I did. Uh, in my career and uh, counseling clients in these areas, big and small. And um, in, in these industries, although many of the companies are very big, like uh, the Apples and Samsungs, you don't need to have an arsenal of patents to use them to your advantage. And so, as I said it right at the beginning, I often ended up having a discussion with clients about the value of patents when they got sued. And this would be uh, you know, a smaller company that may not have any patents, but have a innovative technology. And they'll, they'll get sued by either a big company or a small company. Uh, and they'll say, I, I, how did they get a patent on this? Uh, this is, you know, I don't think this is innovative. I didn't even think it was patentable, but uh, you can get patents on incremental uh, advances. And, uh, at that point, when they got sued, they would get religion about uh, patents. So, and for example, in the IT space, um, you may just need a, a critical patent that covers your principal technology or uh, algorithm or idea. And, and if you get sued, for example, you can assert a, a counterclaim if your opponent is using the idea. And even if they're not using the idea, they may want to cross-license. So it has value. Of course, as uh, Mike explained, a lot of uh, the bigger IT companies have thousands of uh, portfolios of thousands of patents, and they're complicated uh, cross-licensing arrangements. The same is true in medical devices. Th those companies don't all tend to have large portfolio of patents, but some of the bigger companies do. But even if uh, you don't, an example would be uh, the company that just got the exclusion order against Apple on the watches, um, it's a not a large company, but they do have uh, a core group of patents that cover their, I think it's pulse oximeter technology, but Michael, you might correct me on that. It's, uh, but it was a technology was incorporated into the Apple watch. They were able to successfully sue Apple and get an order excluding their watches, at least for now, from being imported. Uh, it may end up that they'll negotiate a very lucrative license with Apple to, to allow Apple to continue to import those products. But anyways, it's a, one way that companies can use, uh, smaller companies can use patents and not necessarily acquire you know, a, a, a large portfolio of them. Bill, in some of the numbers, it indicated that um, information technology and medical device patents are uh, disproportionately represented among the whole universe of, of issued patents. 
Um, do you have any thoughts about why that's the case? Uh, I, I, I do, because I think uh, it, it's more likely that they're filed early before the technology is mature. And um, so uh, in order, because you often have companies that are all working on the same basic technology or area, you have people doing the same thing simultaneously. So there's a, a race to get your patents on file. And it turns out that maybe not all of them will be the, 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 uh, the final technology. But um, because, of, uh, because you're not sure what your competitors are doing, people are filing on ideas that don't end up uh, becoming the main core technology, or uh, they're just uh, the systems themselves are more complicated. So there are more opportunities to um, patent a, a small part of the system as opposed to a pharmaceutical or drug where you know the patent might cover the, the entire product. Thanks, Paul. Uh, next up, Sophie, can you speak about the importance of patents to uh, biopharma? Yeah, and I think I hinted at this a little bit earlier, um, but it, patents are particularly critical for companies to protect their innovations in the biopharma space. So often biopharma gets a bad reputation in terms of um, the, the value of patents and why patents are, why there's such big patent portfolios and things like that. But a, a key fact that I think people often um, overlook is that the average cost of drug research and development is somewhere between 300 million to over $2 billion per drug that comes out. And it can take years of a product actually being approved and being on the market before a company actually recoups that cost. So whether a company is actually able to invest that much money into new therapies and new drugs, which they should, is very much, however, tied to the strength of the patent protection for that particular product um, and how long that particular patent production will last. So patents in the biopharma space are just so incredibly tied to the very core and functioning of these types of companies and whether they can actually um, do the work that they need to do to research and develop new th therapies. Um, patents in this space are also heavily related to FDA approval and associated regulations. So this is something that we often think about when we think about projecting how long patent protection really will last for and meaningful coverage. Um, so for example, patents for new drugs have to be listed in the FDA's orange book before a patent owner can actually initiate a lawsuit against a particular infringer. Um, and there's often, there's all the sorts of deadlines that are in place based on those regulations and statutes to control how you can actually enforce your patent rights. And again, that is another aspect of cost that is very much built into um, the thinking behind how do we actually make sure that we can both um, invest in these types of life-saving therapies and not go under as a company. Um, they're also important for companies, I think, not just companies, but also nonprofits like universities. So in the biopharma space, a ton of the really key cutting edge IP is coming out of university labs. Um, and that is an, an area where the university may not be able to commercialize those, that particular IP. And so it's really important for patents, um, for them to be able to use patents as a source of revenue to license those out. And again, to enable other companies with potentially resources to actually develop the technology and, and the drugs and therapies that are that are built upon that. Um, and the last piece I would say for biopharma, particularly for small startups, um, biotechs here in the greater Boston area, 
a patent is probably one of the most valuable assets, if not the most valuable asset that the company has at an early stage in terms of attracting investors um, and the people who are interested in sort of what this company has to offer. If you don't have or a valuable patent estate, if you don't even have the beginnings of thinking about patent protection, it's going to be much harder for you to be able to even get started at that stage. So in, in my field, it's really important. We tell startups all the time, one of the first things you should be thinking about before you start going out there and publishing and talking to investors is make sure you have your IP rights locked down. Thanks, Sophie. And I agree. That's one of the first things that we ask uh, startups that we're uh, advising is what kind of patent portfolio do you have? What kind of confidence would investors have if they make that investment in your company? Um, next and finally, Michael, um, can you talk about the value of patents to uh, consumer products? And that would also include a lot of the high tech products that we all know and love. Right. I, th I think when a lot of people think of patents and ideas, they, they immediately think of consumer products that are patented. Like certainly the the idea of the wheel or or the idea of a light bulb almost is symbolic of an idea. And there are still patents that claim improvements to both of these. The wheel, we just had a trial on improved carbon fiber bicycle wheels with undulating inner rims to improve aerodynamics on bikes used in the Tour de France. So it gets, there's, there's improvements to all of these devices that are that are continue to be pat, patented and continue to move in innovation forward. For the light bulb, we just had an exclusion order in the ITC blocking imports of improved LED devices used to uh, light Hollywood movie sets. But aside aside from the light bulb and the wheel, um, there are you know, hook and loop fasteners like Velcro has been you know used its uh, IP to protect its Velcro brand. The um, you know soft hydrophilic contact lenses to prevent dry eyes, laming age, laser aiming modules for handguns, noise canceling headphones, infant formula, synthetic sugars. They, it goes on and on the different types of devices and products that can be protected by patent. So in the consumer goods space, many small companies are focused on bringing their good ideas to market while the larger companies are, are concentrating on making profits. And um, patents protect the small companies' innovation while allowing the small companies to share their technology with the larger companies that are mo mostly in a better position to bring the ideas to market and profit from the ideas. So they benefit both the small company and the larger company by having these protections in place to allow those relationships to develop. And most of the time, this results in great mutually beneficial relationships, and that's wonderful. Um, but sometimes the big player is a bully and tries to take the small player's lunch money. Um, and this can, can significantly harm a small company and even threaten its very existence if it doesn't have patent protection. So I, like, I work with a number of clients who were approached by large companies because the large companies couldn't figure out how to do what the small company was doing. And of course, you know, small companies are thrilled when this happens. They they are you know being noticed by a, a corporate giant, flattering, and and the companies are eager to to become you know to gain these relationships. But in in these situations, after the corporate giant got what it needed, it just left. Um, and the the big companies made hundreds of millions of dollars using the uh, the technology that the small companies developed. Um, and essentially forced them into the brink of bankruptcy. 
And without the patent system, you know, there, these these companies wouldn't have survived. It's the patent system that's the only thing that helped these companies actually get uh, compensated for the contributions that they brought to the market. It, one one thing I, I I should have mentioned before on the enforcement side, if if you have a consumer product that's patented, there's one additional enforcement option that's a little bit less, well, a lot less expensive than enforcing your patents at the district court or the ITC. There's a a, um, a program that Amazon provides. Uh, it has two different tools for reporting patent infringement on products that are being sold at Amazon. So the first tool is an electronic form that you can complete and just submit online to Amazon. And, and Amazon will review it and typically remove, remove an accused product without further inquiry based on the submission alone. Um, Amazon's second reporting tool is a bit more robust. It's called the Amazon Patent Evaluation Express. Uh, its uh, acronym is APEX. The APEX program is in inter partes, um, and it en enlists the guidance of a neutral evaluator to remove Amazon um, products. It removes Amazon from the whole process altogether, and this neutral evaluator uh, is an intellectual property attorney who who receives multiple rounds of formal briefing from the from the patent rights holder and the accused infringer. And then the neutral evaluator issues a decision on whether the rights holder is likely to prove infringement. And a losing party, um, their, their products are then promptly removed from Amazon. And that's a hugely powerful uh, remedy when Amazon is so important for, for selling a lot of the consumer products that we all buy. So, yeah, there's it, having patents, if you're in the consumer product space, it's it's essential. Um, and and um, it's it's really drives a lot of value for especially for the small companies. You know, there's a lot of big companies like Elon Musk um, in in Google that that complain about patents and it's because they derive a different type of value from the patents than the smaller companies do. The smaller companies really need them to survive where the, the larger companies need them to negotiate. So, so Michael, one thing about Amazon, I've had clients on both sides of that and you talk about cost effective. I think the fee for, to have Amazon have a neutral evaluation is only like $8,000 and you can end up with basically uh, an exclusion order, or or in the case of somebody trying to sell something on Amazon, you can be excluded from selling, and uh, it's certainly a lot less expensive than the district court. It is. It's a it's a wonderful program that they have. Um, I still would recommend that if you're going to do it, you hire an attorney to to help you through the process because Pete Pete and I have been on this, you know, on, on the patent owner side of this. And you get some unsophisticated responses from from the folks that are trying to defend themselves if they don't you know, if they don't hire competent counsel. But you know, it's it's very cheap compared to, to to anything else that any other way to enforce your rights. Yeah, the eight thousand is just for Amazon, the fee for the neutral. But yeah, you have to have an attorney, uh, which is a lot more than eight thousand <laughs> together. You're your complaint or your defense. That's right. And if you it's win, you get, your fee, you get your fee back if you win too. So 
it's it's a pretty good deal. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Michael. That's an important uh, tool, I think, especially with all of the products that are being sold on Amazon. And, and even with the attorney's fees, it's still a drop in the bucket compared to uh, district court or ITC litigation. So um, let's move on to this last slide. And, and for context, uh, this is a map of the Fraunhofer Institute patent portfolio. Um, and it just shows that unique and diverse patents can be owned by uh, single entities. On, on the left-hand side, if you can see it, uh, we have biology and chemistry. On the right-hand side, they have uh, optics and electronics, and they have a lot of uh, different things in between. But um, I'll throw this out there to the group, um, and you can provide any of the closing thoughts that you want as well. But if you know most patents are not commercialized, um, then you know why do we care so much about uh, patents throughout you know this diverse space or these large portfolios? And um, when we go in order, Phil, maybe we can start with you. Well, um, I will just say I'm the old man of this group, and I've been doing this since the 1980s, and I've observed the patent system grow. I think it's a fundamental part of the American economy. It it it's goes in cycles, but we're in a up cycle for, for patents. And um uh you know it it was established very wisely by the founding fathers in the constitution. The uh it if you look it up it's it's the patent system is to promote the progress of science and the useful arts. And I think one of the things that may has made America the American economy successful over the 220, 50 years, whatever, is uh, the patent system. Great. Thanks, Phil. Uh, Sophie, any thoughts about this or any closing thoughts in, in general? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, sort of the misnomer of what it means to commercialize your patents, right? Um, and, and what we always say is you should always think about patents as a necessary part of your business and helping you with your business goals. And if your business goals are different from another company, then your use of patents may be different and that's perfectly fine. Um, you know, if you know you're in a competitive space and there are lots of other companies that are vying for market share, you may spend more money up front because you might actually think about enforcing your patents. That may be a reality for you. Um, and so you may want to obtain as strong of a patent estate as you can. You might want to include very narrow claims that only cover your product to make sure nobody can really try to do a copycat. Um, you might do a lot of things differently. But on the other hand, if you never plan to enforce your patents, if you're really thinking about, I'm trying to get some money into my investment, I'm thinking about as you know a biotech getting um, funding to kind of move on to the next stage, then maybe you're thinking more broadly. You're thinking about actually building up an estate just so that you can use that as an asset to negotiate and to get um, you know more interest from investors. So I think it's a mistake to think of patents as sort of an one or sort of nothing, all or nothing type of situation. They are a tool, just like any other tool, and they're an important one for a number of reasons. But you should always be thinking about your own business and what are the actual goals for the company. Um, and I think what we've shown, hopefully through this presentation, is that there can be a lot of ways that patents can help you succeed regardless of what your goals are. Great. Thanks, Sophie. 
Michael, how about you? Well, I completely agree with what Phil and Sophie just said. Uh, patents are my favorite type of intellectual property because not only do they drive value for the large companies and help them negotiate, you know, peaceful dealings within you know the complex markets, they also help protect the little guy. And they force companies, you know, one of the important things is even if you're not going to, to use your patent, they've, you've been forced to divulge your ideas to the public in a way that allows others to use your invention um, and improve on them. So, so even if never asserted, even if you just let them, you know, expire or, or you don't pay your, your fees and you're just not going to use them, they've still contributed to the public interest by the disclosure function alone. So uh, they're, they're a fantastic um, a fantastic benefit to large companies, small companies in society and in general. Great, thanks, Michael. And um, at this point, I'll open it up to uh, any questions that our audience might have for any of the panelists. Uh, if you have questions, you can put them in the chat, I believe. All right, and I promised my panel I wouldn't give them any curveballs, but while we're waiting for questions to come in, um, I'm going to throw one at or, uh, at each of them. Uh, starting, why don't we start with uh, Phil again? Phil, if there was one thing about our patent system that you could change, what would it be? Um, it wouldn't be a change. It would be the way judges manage patent litigation uh patent litigation is extremely expensive um uh you know if you look at the statistics for uh that are compiled by the american intellectual property law association you know taking a patent case of trial is going to cost you know at least a couple of million and maybe five or six or even multiples of that so i'd like to see judges manage patent litigation more cost effectively and use the tools that they have to do that, which include, you know, controlling just the amount of discovery and if necessary, uh, reversing the fees or uh, awarding fees uh, to a, a winning in favor of a winning party on discrete issues or in the whole case, if um, one of the parties uh, abuses the system. And judges, I know, are reluctant to do that. But when it comes to patent litigation, which is so expensive, I wish they would uh, use those tools more often. Great. Um, Sophie, anything that you would change about um, the patent system or our, our litigation process? Any thoughts about that? Uh, so I agree with Phil that I think um, that that's certainly managing patent litigation is is quite difficult and and having um, better ways of handling some of that would be great. Um, I think it's I think for me, um, there's a lot of areas of patent law that are very tricky. And I think um, there's been a perhaps prevalence or a trend in recent years through both the courts and at the patent office where, um, I do think that patent owners are struggling a little bit with some of the rules changing um, in favor of sort of invalidating patents. And that's particularly difficult for 
my clients and for folks in the life sciences space where again a lot of these investments are made you know years and years ahead of litigation and you're thinking about whether to invest in particular products that you think will have great patent protection um and then a one court case is really all it takes to kind of throw that into uh, uh you know a bit of a mess so i think having um courts understanding the value of these patents and the reliance of patent owners on understanding sort of settled law and sort of um, making sure that the law is being applied equally for both patent owners and patent challengers is really important. And that's one area where I think, you know, we could improve in that when we're when we look at the way that cases have come out in recent years. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I, I was watching a, a conference, uh, I think given by U.S. Investor, and they were talking about the fact that with the PTAB in particular, it's hard for investors to have confidence sometimes in um, patents as a whole or just the investment into companies that have patent protection. Um, and one you know, big issue in the US is that uh, you, you can keep challenging patents indefinitely, whereas in the EPO, you have a nine month window um, to, to challenge patents post grant, um, which we don't have here with the, the PTAB, you can always, if you're a, a new party, um, you know, challenge the patent. And so it results in a lot of serial challenges to important patents. Um, Michael, uh, do you have any closing thoughts or any thoughts about, you know, that process at the PTAB? Yeah, well, I, I agree with with Sophie wholeheartedly as soon as you said what would I change I would say let get the Supreme Court out of patent law it, it causes a, a lot of problems when this court that has very little understanding of how this entire thing works uh, they they weighed in ever since 1996 with with Markman it's it, 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 ever since then there's been a systematic confusion caused by the Supreme Court's decisions in patent law including TC Heartland and including um, eBay, include, you know, just one after another, Alice. It's caused so much uncertainty for the patent owners. And it's difficult for, for anyone you know, in that, that's got a patent to know whether or not it's, it's, it's going to be invalidated or it's going to hold muster when, when they assert it because of the confusion caused by the Supreme Court. The Federal Circuit Court of Appeals were... The, the appeals go first on a patent case has been, you know, overall very good until the Supreme Court causes uh, this confusion. And so I wish the Supreme Court would just, you know, lay off and, and let the, the federal circuit do its thing. Yeah, I agree. And it almost reached ahead last year with American Axel, where the very test that the Supreme Court, court laid out, um, you know, the federal circuit wasn't sure how to apply that to uh, the particular invention on a drive shaft, which uh, recited uh, an equation. I, I think it was Hooke's law. Um, and uh, the Federal Circuit declined certiorari in that particular instance. So um, that area of law is still still very muddy. Uh, I will say this, uh, Peter, uh, I agree. Uh, the issue of subject matter patentability, which is what you're talking about, section 101 of the patent statute has been messed up by the Supreme Court. But uh, that's only recently. Uh, the Supreme Court, if they just went back to their precedents from 30 years ago uh, on section 101 
uh, subject matter patentability, it would be fine. Uh, or if they just stuck to the statute, they'd be fine. It's their um, non-statutory uh, requirements uh, that have caused the problem. And uh, so the, the statute is okay. If, if you ask me, I know they're going to try to uh, uh, amend it, but um, it's a pretty simple statute on subject matter patentability. Right. Thanks, Phil. So at this point, um, there are no open questions. So I would like to uh, say thank you to our expert panel for taking the time today to speak to everyone. If you would like to uh, ask any questions of them after this presentation, their emails are here and you can find this recording at the uh, BBA's website. So uh, thank you, Phil, Sophie, and Michael uh, for this great talk. And uh, Noel, I think I think that concludes our, our webinar.